Join us for the FDF Awards online February 3rd, 2021. Visit our website, fdf.org.uk, for full details. I'm Nikki Hunt, Director of Membership and Commercial at FDF. And also for the last nine months or so, I've also been the FDF's COVID incident lead, which has been a, a bit of a roller coaster at time. Um, also, just to thank our sponsors for the session today, uh, EIT Food and Clark Energy. Thank you very much. For the next hour or so, we'll be looking at how the pandemic has impacted various parts of the food and drink supply chain, from uh, food manufacturing through to the hospitality and food service side, and also uh, consumer behaviour that we've seen change uh, quite enormously throughout the course of the pandemic. I'm delighted to say that today we're joined by um, three uh, esteemed industry experts. Uh, we have Ash Amerimadi from uh, Arla Foods, he's Managing Director there. Uh, Clodagh Sherrod from Food and Drink Consultants, Levercliffe, and Kate Nichols, who has been extremely busy over the last few days, as you might have seen, uh, who is the Chief Executive of UK Hospitality, the industry body for the uh, hospitality sector. So if I could ask uh, Kate first, if you could just give a very brief introduction to yourself and your organisation, please. Thank you for inviting me to join you here today. I'm Kate Nichols. I'm Chief Executive at UK Hospitality, which is the national trade body representing hospitality businesses, everything from single site operators right the way through to the national chains and across all the food and drink aspects as well as accommodation. So coffee shops, sandwich shops, cafes, restaurants, pubs, bars, nightclubs, hotels, holiday parks and accommodation, uh, as well as a number of visitor attractions. So quite a widespread. We have 900 member companies. Between them, they operate 90,000 outlets. And we represent about 90, 95% of the, the UK's hospitality and tourism businesses. Lovely, thank you. Cloda. Hi, thanks, Nikki. Um, and yes, thank you um, for inviting me as well. Um, it's great to be doing a panel discussion rather than a webinar, because we have done a couple of webinars with you guys um, throughout COVID. Um, I'm from Levercliff. Levercliff is a consultancy, as Nikki said. Um, we specialise in the food and drink sector. Um, we work with our clients very much around understanding their categories, whether that's the category into retail or food service, um, and sometimes the B2B sector. Um, we really focus on providing research and insight around the category um, and consumer trends and, and how consumers' tensions and needs are evolving for every um, category. We then look at strategy development um, and also skills development for, for companies. Um, as well as working with manufacturers, we also do a lot of work with um, government agencies. And Kate and I were talking about uh, the hospitality sector in Wales, because we, we do a lot of work with the drink sector in Wales. And we work with people like Warbia, the Irish Food Board, Scotland Food and Drink, um, uh, and uh, Invest Northern Ireland. So throughout uh, the, the islands of, of, of uh, Ireland and, and uh, UK. Lovely, thanks, Clodagh. And Ash. Thank you, Nikki. And uh, I echo Kate and Clodagh's uh, uh, gratitude for being invited uh, to be in this panel. So Ashley Miramadi, uh, MD of Arla. Um, I guess Arla, um, a big company that not everyone knows about. So we're the third biggest food and drink company. Um, we're owned by farmers, so 2,300 British dairy farmers. Um, we uh, pretty much uh, operate in every sort of channel sector. Um, probably have our history is more about the retail sector, but uh, we've definitely been growing uh, in other channels more recently. Um, and the sort of balance of our business, uh, I think, is also quite interesting that we started our history of being a predominantly private label supplier um, to our customers, and it's much more balanced now. Uh, and actually managing those agendas as one agenda is an interesting kind of uh, 
leadership uh, challenge, but very, very pleased uh, to be invited to be on the panel. Lovely, thank you. So just to get us started and lead us into the, the wider discussion, um, obviously sitting here now, this time last year, I think probably few of us had got a clue about the sort of thing that uh, 2020 was going to turn into. Um, so if I could just start with Ash, where, when you were sort of sitting in your office this time last year, what were you expecting for the for the sector and for your industry as well? What was 2020 looking like? Well, well, for my business, I was actually a little bit worried because our growth was starting to slow down. So I was kind of trying to ponder. Uh, we'd, we'd had this sort of year after year of growing, uh, particularly our branded business, by sort of 7% uh, CAGR every year, which is huge sort of growth. But then looking at a year where that was going to... So I was actually quite worried about, you know, what will we, how will the business feel about a year that's not going to have a lot of growth? Um, on a personal level, I just spent some time with a coach working out how to really have work-life balance and building breaks and kind of so I was really excited about this year that I was going to kind of really finally get work-life balance in uh, in my life and uh, it didn't quite turn out like that so uh, <laughs> yeah I think that's, that's probably, probably, <laughs> probably the same for all of us I think isn't it really <laughs> so, um, and I think probably you know Kate is probably the uh, the expert on the and trying to manage some sort of uh, life in the last 12 months or so. Um, but for, from the hospitality side of things, Kate, what were you expecting 2020 to look like for your members? So 2020, uh, we were forecasting another year of growth. 5% annualised growth was what we were anticipating this year and one in six of net new jobs being generated by the hospitality sector, continuing that very positive story. So we ended 2019 um, £139 billion industry, £39 billion of that in foreign tourist spend, making us the third largest export earner. So the spend that foreign tourists make on eating and drinking out in the UK is bigger than all our food and drink exports put together. Uh, so third largest export earner and 3.2 million. We were at record employment levels. Um, since then, sadly, we've lost 660,000 staff, so a 20% decline in employment. Um, our uh, annualised growth has gone from plus five to minus 40 and worsening as we go into the Christmas period. Um, so pretty bleak, um, having started on a quite an optimistic note. And I think from a, from a political and a business perspective, we anticipated that 2020 would be dominated by Brexit. At the start of 2020, the debate, the discussion was all about the government's new immigration policy. How were we going to manage as a sector when we had acute labour shortages because we were set to generate all of these jobs and we had a really tight labour market, almost full employment? How were we going to cope with that? Those were the messages in, in sort of January that we were taking forward to government. And I do remember having a very strange conversation with some of my members at the end of January when they said, why are you wasting so much time going and talking to government about COVID and the need for support in COVID when it was emerging in China, when we really need to focus on immigration? And I was like, trust me, you're going to be welcome and appreciate the fact that we put those hard yards in. So um, starting to hear about it at the, the early new year, but, but totally expecting Brexit to be dominating my life, my working life. And Brexit is now a welcome relief to talk about and it, as an alternative to COVID, which I never thought I would say. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. We'll come back to Brexit, actually, because uh, I, I want to uh, quiz Ash on his uh, 30,000 pieces of uh, extra paperwork that he was uh, talking about on the BBC News. So we'll, we'll return to Brexit in a second. But Clauda, um, I think over the previous few years, we'd started to see some shifts in consumer behaviour, hadn't we? And um, the sort of the, the big shop that people had 
started to do it um, reduced down into smaller sort of weekly, uh, sorry, more, more occasional convenience purchases, that sort of thing. So what, what are you expecting consumers to be looking for from 2020? Yeah, I, I think that's very much it. I think it was very much, as Kate was saying, it was this the growth of hospitality. So the growth of the eating out um, uh, um, sector was, was was really very much um, on a lot of people's minds. And for those that were supplying into retail, it was how do we hang on to some of that when we're in a retail store? Um, but equally those in the sort of the food service bit is how do we sort of counter, you know, how do we cater for various different day parts? Because we knew that the breakfast occasion was, was growing, there were different day parts growing. So we had clients that were really looking at opportunities right across Across the sort of innovation spectrum, um, both in terms of from a retail perspective, in terms of how to respond to the need to hang on to, to um, customers uh, at different times of the day, but equally actually thinking about how do they transition into food service and have food to go um, offerings. So I think for us, um, I think we would also say that you know we were expecting a lot of work um, to be focused around Brexit, both in terms of what were the potential opportunities that would arise from the UK if the UK consumer was going to become more loyal to UK products? Was this something our companies needed to focus on in terms of their branding and their messaging? But equally, companies that were looking to export, you know, what was the opportunities that might arise um, uh, beyond Europe? But equally, how did they manage their existing accounts within the European perspective? You know, what did they need to do to, to, to secure listings they already had and actually find ways of driving growth. So we were expecting um, the innovation was around the convenience and and, and and the actual home sector, but very much the um, flip side of that was what were the challenges that need to be prepared from uh, Brexit and then what were the opportunities that actually Brexit would bring both from a home and an export perspective. Yeah, lovely. So um, obviously COVID hit uh, <coughs> back in um, March time, it really sort of became an issue for the UK. Um, and what were the immediate challenges that you started to see in a, a big food business such as Arla? Well, well a bit like Kate, actually. So we, we got sort of pre-warning wasn't the right word because obviously everyone was seeing over Christmas what was happening in Wuhan and sort of a slow sort of train coming our way. Um, and uh, But because we're a global business, we were, you know, forewarned quite early on. And I remember being taken into a room, well, it was actually a physical physical meeting in sort of mid-Feb and told that over the next few days, we were going to completely stop everything and replan around potentially everyone in the business working from home and all the kind of things that most people have. And I remember just sitting there, get, my immediate thought was, yeah, we're, we're going too early here. We're, you know, this is all a bit kind of alarmist and a bit kind of, and then just the transformation that I had to go through in the space of about six or seven days of getting my head around the disruption that was going to come at us. And then how do I then get my leaders? And I was then the guy that I think 10 days later, because we, what we did is to not disrupt the business. We took about six or seven people out for about 10 days and said, how do we, so we were quite quick at sort of mobilizing because we'd learned from our Chinese operation. We were learning from our operations, although we're not big in uh, Italy we were learning from our operations in Italy what was going on there. And I remember the day that I walked in to various different meetings that were going on and asked everyone to stop the meetings and then kind of do three things. One was organise for everyone to work from home for next Monday. Number two, reorganise our priorities to make absence level the number one KPI in the business and make sure that the 85% of people who are on the front line turn up to work every day. And number three, 
simplify our product range down to 25% less than what we have now and be prepared for the biggest disruption we've ever had. That was a very surreal conversation. And to get people to take me seriously, there was a bit of a kind of, is he having, you know, is, is this a bit of a sort of a business simulation? And, and it was, but it was real. Um, so I think that, that kind of mindset of we're going to turn everything around and actually those first few days of, you know, people just shaking their heads and just saying, this is nuts. You know, this is a really stupid thing to be doing now and fear and the panic and the, you know, what's going to happen to all the things that we thought were important and then realized were really not that important. Um, so I think that, that for me was um, how it happened right at the beginning. And I'm, and I'm sure there'll be other views as well. And, and I think then how it unfolded, I think was fascinating for me. And I've got some very sort of, I mean, hugely, clearly, hugely disruptive, especially as Kate will, I'm sure, tell us about the hospitality sector. So, you know, incredibly sort of, you know, distressing to see what was happening there, having friends that work in that sector, having parts of our business in that sector, you know, both within, you know, Arla and outside of Arla, but, you know, hugely distressing. And of course, the very personal sort of journey that everyone, you know, everyone has had a personal human journey with this virus. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Everyone has got a relationship with this virus in some way. Um, and that was quite a, you know, having elderly parents and then kind of thinking what's what's going to happen there. So there was a lot of things going on. But I think one of my reflections I'd like to expand on a bit later, Nick, is, you know, the, the, the narrative that says I think as a food industry, not every part of the food industry, obviously, but as a food industry overall, I think we come out, and we're not out of it yet, of COVID, stronger as an industry than what we went in. And uh, I'd like to give the other panellists a chance to also expand on before I, but I'd like to talk about that and, and what I mean by that and why, why actually, I'm not saying I wish COVID would have happened, of course I don't, And uh, but I think there are some, you know, things that happen that I think are good for the future of the food industry. Yes, yeah, that's excellent. We will indeed come back to that uh, shortly. That's uh, that's great, Ash. Um, Kate, from your perspective, you mentioned and, and Ash touched on this: the difficulty in getting people to to take this um, seriously, um, to, to sort of understand the sort of the extent of, of the threat. Um, how difficult did you find it as you know you started to see um, sort of the panic buying, the cases going up, that sort of thing. Um, at what point did you find that your industry was sort of coming on board and thinking, yes, you know, this, this is actually going to be probably the biggest thing that we, we face for a, a generation? Um, I think it, it wasn't anything that, that was common across the whole industry. So there were bits of our industry that got it quicker than others because they could see the direct impact on their business. Um, I, I think probably early February was when most of our businesses woke up to know that this was going to be something that came to the UK. So we're in a fortunate position because obviously being tourism businesses as well as high street hospitality, we're part of that emergency planning group that looks at potential big threats to the economy, potential disruptors to, to international trade and, and international visitor numbers. So we were getting the indications of what was happening from, from international flights, international tourism, at the end of January, that very early point. So from, from that point on, it was just a question of when it came to the UK, not if. Um, and so, so I remember having that call uh, that said, you know, it, it's clear it's, it's, it's got out of Wuhan, it's not contained in Wuhan, it's in Beijing, 
and then you know that it, it's in the international markets um, and it's just a question of when. So for many of our businesses, particularly in central London, they started to feel the direct impact on their business from the very first week in February because you had cancellation of visitor numbers, international flights stopped. Um, anybody who was part of an international business um, stopped having meetings, stopped traveling. And I, I do remember over the course of February, lots of you know, Diageo, Coke, not being allowed to come to business meetings, Nestle, not being allowed to come to business meetings unless it was absolutely essential. And, and a lot of people struggling to understand that, but we could see what was happening. So we got quite high buy-in from our, our businesses around about mid-February. Um, and, and lots of people then starting to talk about the impact, not knowing that it was going to be a catastrophic black swan event. I don't think anybody really fully woke up in the industry to that scale of, of impact until the beginning of March. But you could see um, at February half term, the the uh, the V&A, the, uh, the British Museum having visitor numbers down 70 percent, central London hotels having occupancy down uh, 80, 90 percent, and they haven't recovered. Um, so so you could you could tell just walking around our offices in Hoburn, you could tell that the visitors were down, that hospitality was struggling. Um, but I, I don't think anybody thought it would be that huge black swan. And it was right up until sort of early March before people got their head around and I was struggling to get them to take seriously the idea of a national lockdown. And there was still a sense of palpable shock amongst many people, even though they knew the risks, even though they knew what was happening palpable shock when the Prime Minister stood up on the 16th of March and said, do not go to pubs and restaurants. And even then, I think many people in our sector, many people across the UK did not think we were going into lockdown. Um, and I think that that lack of mental preparedness, mental resilience to be to be thinking that we would go down down the route of locking down. There was there was quite a lot of denial uh, amongst the industry. But, um, you know, that's that's when we started to feel the effects. That's when we started talking seriously to politicians. And I suppose I, I, I could see that this was going to be a, a big issue. Um, I suppose it, it's sort of, it is, it's February half term for me when it flipped from being that, that grey rhinoceros that they talk about in, in sort of Davos and international circles. It flipped from being the grey rhinoceros just there on the, the side of the vision that, you know, keep an eye on it, it might come and hit you. And it went into full black swan for me, for 14th of Feb. Yes, I think you sort of, you did see this sort of, um, you know, like a sort of a wave going across the, the whole sort of sector, really, didn't you, as, as people sort of started to grasp the... Yes. Yeah. Yes, well, it, and, and, and I think the more you were exposed to that kind of market, international business meetings, international companies, functions, exhibitions, conferences, it started to have a domino effect. Um, and they started to be cancelled. And so you, you, you were feeling it acutely in London, um, as I say, from, from the beginning of February. And then it started to, to pass out. So Manchester Central businesses also felt that uh, the conference and exhibition sector started to feel that and, and started to close down. So I think we had effectively gone into lockdown and shutdown and restriction well before national lockdown hit at the end of March, which is something that I keep telling MPs. You know, you think you went into lockdown in the end of March. We started to have minus 50, minus 60, minus 70% um, drop in sales from the middle of February in, in parts of our sector. And certainly on the high street, um, uh, you know, people, people had stopped coming into work. People were starting to work from home and you were having an impact on high street hospitality from, from the end of February. Um, and I think it's that length of time that it has hit 
and the fact that we've had restrictions since then. So, you know, our sector has not come out of lockdown since no. March. No, no, exactly. I'm just um, picking up on something that uh, Clodum and I were talking about actually last week when we had a quick um, quick conversation about the, the panel. What at this stage, Clodum, was really going through consumers' minds? We talked a bit about the sort of the, the trade-offs that we started to see people making in, in their purchasing. Obviously, we saw the very um, emotive, scary pictures of, of all the stockpiling and, uh, you know, sort of completely empty shelves of toilet rolls and all that sort of thing, and, and the, particularly the, sort of the ambient products, that sort of thing. But what, what were consumers starting to think? And sort of as we moved into the pandemic, how did you see them start to change some of their purchasing behaviour? I think it is. I mean, it was a you know, it was it was the complete unknown for them because I think it was um, you know, for, for most consumers, they've never been through anything like this um, before. And, and I think also initially at the beginning was nobody had any sense of how long it was going to last. So um, you know, and I think um, initially, you know, we when we were doing our research, we, you know, we talked about the fact that it takes sixty six days to break a habit. You know, would we see this going on for sixty six days? And suddenly we were doing into wave two, wave three of our research, and we were well in past 66 days in terms of consumer behavior. So I think the initial, and, and, and it's interesting to see on the last lockdown, I don't think we've seen any um, uh, you know, degree of that repeat um, panic buying. So again, I think it was that first initial shock was, was very much about consumers not knowing how would the system stack up? Um, would it be able to cope? Um, I think Ash is right, you know, it, in some ways, um, the industry has done a fantastic job in terms of being able to, to uh, you know, make sure the supply chain is more resilient. Um, but I, I think there would be a number of businesses that might question whether, you know, the food sector is going to come out. There are a lot of smaller businesses who would have supplied only into hospitality and won't survive this. Um, but the positive on, on, on the smaller side, again, I think for the, the um, on consumer behavior is the return to the high street, the return to the independent sector. Um, and that doesn't look like it's falling away because actually what we're seeing is that, um, you know, in the latest uh, 12 week figures, the independent sector has grown ahead of all of the other retailers. Um, and I know in the last three months, you know, we were tracking whether consumers were going to butchers and, um, uh, bakers and stuff, and I know in the last three months, um, you know, over two million um, visits to to butcher stores, which is up a hundred thousand on this time last year. So again, that that, that sense that the consumer wants to connect. Um, there was an underlying consumer trend towards wanting to support local, but they weren't really actioning it. Um, you know, it was a lot of it was consumers say they want to do it without actually doing it. Um, but I think what COVID has actually done is 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 reconnected the consumer with their local high street with this sense of I want to be part of a village, um, I want to support, and I think Brexit is going to um, you know cement that even further. Um, you know we know that again consumers are concerned. Um, you know we asked them around Brexit in our last uh, wave, and again one of the concerns they had was. Um, Rising prices is the biggest one, but but fear of food shortages is it, it comes number two. So again, there is a concern there around um, whether they'll be able to get products. Um, but I think you know COVID obviously means that the the sector is stronger in terms of being able to do that and and, and more resilient. Um, but I certainly think you know in terms of the food sector, I think a lot of them and we've worked with a number of companies in terms of pivoting and learning how to sell online and direct to consumer sales um, and again our you know our trends would so show that you know we have you know um uh, interesting we were doing some focus groups recently um and what what really surprised me was the older shoppers that we talked to on in this particular category they were loving online shopping uh, and, and and for lots of different reasons the fact that they didn't have to carry bags with a walking stick 
you know, that that, that, that that sort of the challenges that they've had before with, with shopping has, uh, you know, gone and, and they don't intend to go back into stores, which they don't class as being safe. So, um, yeah, so I think a lot of it was initial panic and in the, in the sense of the unknown. I think we now have been in this situation for so long. I think habits will have definitely changed for consumers. Can I, can I just add a bit on that, Nikki, as well, just to build on what Claude just said, because we did quite a lot of consumer sentiment as we were going into lockdown and into the crisis. Um, while there was a lot of panic buying going on in supermarkets, there was sort of a, a schizophrenic personality from the consumer. They still expected to be able to go to their local hospitality. So neighborhood pubs, neighborhood restaurants, they, while they were panic buying in the supermarkets, they were still think, happy to go out. And even, you know, the sort of last week before we went into lockdown, still quite a desire to go and eat and drink out locally. Uh, and I think you've seen that throughout the crisis as well, where, you know, the hospitality supply chain has pivoted and customers have looked to their local pub, to a lesser extent, their local restaurant, to, to actually act as a, a retail supply, you know, sort of buy fresh fruit and vegetables, buy their flour, buy their to source goods that were not in shortage in the UK, but were simply in the wrong pack size in the UK, because, you know, the, the hospitality sector buys big bags of rice, big bags of pasta, big bags of flour. I think it's quite interesting that that, that shift happened quite quickly, that they took that idea of shopping locally and they transferred it to their local community pub and their local restaurant to be able to go and, and source their product. So I think that's an element of where the food chain resilience comes from and actually the food chain innovation, which I think are two things we need to be keeping a strong message on to, to go back to, to the public, but also to other stakeholders and government. That really ties into the point that, um, that Ash was making earlier about the, the industry coming back stronger from this and certainly when we've spoken to our members and obviously you do as, as well Kate um, there seems to be a huge amount of um, adaptation innovation to, to try and cope with this but um, in, in terms of sort of how we how we come back um, Ash have you you've got a sort of sense of, of how you think things will start to recover as we we move out and sort of how you think as a as a sector we've managed to um, if you like, emphasise the importance of food and drink. People are recognising food workers as the uh, hidden heroes. Um, and it's it's really sort of given people a wake-up call as to how important um, the food supply chain is. Yeah, and I, th I, think, I think as an industry, but also as an individual, I, I think there's been a kind of, um, I don't know, a realisation, if you like, um, of the role um, that actually the food industry plays in society, you know, and, and, and I remember when that sort of early narrative was being used around feeding the nation and just feeling a bit uncomfortable using that narrative internally to sort of, to people that that's actually what we're doing. <laughs> and uh, if we, I think we, we certainly, I, I speak for ourselves as a business, not, not the industry, but I, I think we weren't really conscious of, and maybe detached from actually what is the role that we play. There's a very practical role that we play as the third biggest food and drink company and as third, you know, um, biggest category dairy. There's actually a role that we play in feeding people. And if, and if we can't get our products to the shops, and that's, a, that's, a, that's an issue. Not as important as the role that the NHS plays. So I think there was a kind of a, a calibration uh, both within the industry but also maybe in society uh, in some sense, and certainly in, in government of the role. And, and, and I think that the government did some really, really good things. I, I was really impressed with the way DEFRA um, really fought hard for, for, for food workers to be identified as key. And that wasn't a certain thing at the beginning. 
that wasn't uh, that wasn't uh, that wasn't a sort of a sure. Now looking back on it, it's so obvious that was going to happen. But I remember a debate going on whether food work, you know, waiting to find out whether food workers and um, so I think that was really um, important. Um, and it also I think forced people to come together in a way um, that we never had done before. So I think the FDF clearly played a huge role in that. I think the sort of government groups around the food resilience industry forum, and of course then dealing, so there was the practicality of how do we feed people, but then there was also practicality about what do we do about this really important sector, which is hospitality, which you know plays a really important part in people's lives, much more important than we thought. And actually much more important than I thought, both in terms of in as an individual, but also the impact of it, you know, when, when suddenly you don't have that anymore. Wow, that makes a big difference. Um, so I think there was a lot of kind of stuff that people were brought together. And I think the other thing that happened is, and again, I'll talk from a very personal perspective. You know, I got access, even though I'm in a senior role, I got access to people that I was finding very difficult to get access to beforehand. And then suddenly I was getting access to people and and the whole conversation was more around kind of we're in it together. And that for me was a very liberating thing as a leader and as a person. And it, and it kind of, you know, it energised me rather than sort of uh, daunted me. Um, and, and I think those were really healthy things that have happened, I think, as we look forward um at what some of the maybe changes that, that Cloda talks about in terms of consumer behavioural changes and the channel shifts and so on, and we can get into that. I think that's going to be really important to remember that that's you know the, the role that we play in society and how we came together and our resilience. And therefore, and I think the watch out for the industry is that I've noticed in wave two, the kindness and the care that was shown in wave two is not there in the same way. So it's not that we've become unkind, we're not quite as understanding of each other, and and I, and I think that's an important lesson to learn as we go. And that that you know, assuming that we are going to have other disruptive factors like Brexit, maybe who knows, in two or three years, another virus. That you know, assuming that we are in this world that everyone keeps talking about, and we roll our eyes about VUCA world, assuming that is going to be what are actually the competencies and the skills that we need to be able to not just survive but thrive in that. Well, cooperation is a really important one. And actually, we need to be careful about not slipping back into some, maybe some old habits about how we work. So um, so those are just some sort of reflections around, you know, what we learn and how the industry. But of course, you know, there are parts of the industry that are, you know, as Kate said, still in lockdown, still in, you know, they're not back, you know, and, and who knows what it's going to look like when they, when they come back. But hospitality for me I'm not, you know I hadn't quite realized until Kate mentioned it about tourism you know what's tourism going to look like got no idea Kate's probably going to tell us um in in, in the future um but anyway I'll uh, pass back to you again Nikki yeah I think just to pick up on your point actually I mean certainly when I've had conversations with um uh, sort of our affiliate members that work across other manufacturing sectors they, they've made the point that sort of food has maybe not been quite as good as collaborating across the whole chain as as some other sectors do. Um, but Kate, have, have you found that um, everyone's sort of a, a bit more sort of uh, willing to work together, a bit more of a sense of everybody in it together? Yes, although I have to say, hospitality has been a pretty unique sector in, in amongst others, in that that was always our modus operandi. You know, uh, we are an incredibly cooperative, collaborative sector. It's partly because 
We are um, a, a sector that is made up of lots of small and medium-sized businesses. We don't have a small number of corporates dominating the market and taking most of the market share. So the competition concerns are far less acute in our sector because nobody has that kind of market share. So we've always been much more collaborative, much more cooperative. People who come from other sectors, particularly retail or food manufacturing, and they come into hospitality are really surprised at how competitors will share information with them, share market information, share ideas, give them support and reach out. Um, so perhaps that's because we work in hospitality and that is our nature. We help people, we want to support, we give you a big hug. Um, that's our role in life. And, you know, we literally are there to, to, for the fun times, to make people feel happy, to give them a great experience. And putting our arms around people is just our natural instinct. Um, I think hospitality went even further um, in, in the collaboration and the cooperation. You had an, a massive amount of outreach, considering they were on their knees with no uh, income coming in and very limited amounts of support, um, reaching out to, to house the homeless, to house NHS workers, to house uh, COVID patients who are coming out of, of hospital. You know, they, they did literally put themselves on the front line. They put themselves at high risk. They fed people, they fed their local communities, they did Meals on Wheels, uh, and they also reached out and supported their supply chain and other businesses that were going, going down the pan. Whether that was um, sharing their learnings and giving uh, support financially to, to other businesses or just making sure that, that, that they kept their supply chain in business as much as they were able to by, by selling to, the, to their customers. So the kindness and care, I think we've already always had that. I was quite surprised to see it reach out across the whole of the supply chain uh, and that the sort of natural state of being for hospitality did expand further. I think Ash is absolutely right. We've lost that slightly um, since since the, the end of the first lockdown. We have slightly lost that all in this together. Um, I think the other things that I would, would pick out from, from the learnings uh, and the, the, the benefits, I think we really were able to graphically in real time demonstrate what we've been saying to ministers and, and other stakeholders for a long time, that the food supply chain is, is, is fragile, it's vulnerable, and you haven't put enough effort into securing our resilience and, and um, uh, making sure that we are taken seriously. And, and, you know, we've been warning, Ian and I have been sitting in meetings, um, warning about the fact that Brexit would be a real threat and the supply chains and food supply chains were not as resilient as ministers thought. And I think we've been slightly dismissed. And this was a real example in, in real time of, of what we were saying, not just that they're fragile, but also that they're interrelated. You know, and I think Ash is right that I don't think many people have realised how important the hospitality supply was for food manufacturers who did both and retailers. And that if you damaged one uh, and you didn't have one, it had real big knock on effects across the rest of the business. And the obvious part of that that, that we keep highlighting is, is on food wholesaling, um, you know, particularly into the public sector. It's entirely subsidised by hospitality. So I think ministers had sort of fail to appreciate that butterfly effect that, you know, something that you do to hospitality does not just hit a hospitality business. It, it ripples up the supply chain. It ripples across into manufacturing. It also has a knock-on effect on, on Christmas. And they're going to find it this time in, in lockdown too as well. You know, you take out that chunk of, of eating out of home and it has a bigger impact than, than perhaps you would see. And, I you know, I think finally the, the, the point about our supply chain in particular 
uh, which is something that Cloda touched on, is not only are we 80% SMEs in, in hospitality, but our supply chain is a supply chain of SMEs as well. Uh, and so that, that fragility, that lack of resilience, that lack of cash reserves is built in. And I don't think ministers have fully got their head around that even now. So, you know, the, the talk is still about, well, we've got a vaccine in three months' time. You can come out of restrictions in three months' time. You might get your job retention bonus in three months' time. If you are a big corporate, you could probably withstand that. These small independent businesses that are living hand to mouth without that cash reserve, three months is a lifetime. Uh, and I, I don't think we've begun to see the devastation that will come across our industry in hospitality, but also that broader supply chain and, and food wholesaling. And it will have a knock on effect up chain as well, just at the point in which we're trying to grapple with Brexit. Yes, yeah. Um, just conscious of time, obviously a quick reminder to the audience, if you'd like to ask any questions, to, uh, to please type them in the box. Otherwise, we'll, we'll carry on there with, with questions that we have. Um, just to, to pivot slightly um, into some of the other big issues, um, because I think COVID has had an impact on some of the, the big issues that industry has been grappling with, such as obesity and, and sustainability. Um, and obviously, we'll, we'll return to, to Brexit as well in a second. But um I think obviously the sort of the, the links that they found between obesity and COVID has obviously um, focused government's attention much more on, on that issue. And we've seen a, a whole raft of consultations start to, to come through. Um, Claudia, from the consumer's point of view, do you think that um, some of these um, sort of interrelationships with, with um, obviously on the, the obesity side of things and things such as sustainability, because there's been a big focus on uh, sort of hygiene and packaging and, and that sort of thing. How have you seen um, some of those drive consumer behaviour? Um, it, it's interesting because it, it's um, sort of uh, uh, in two different ways. So on the sustainability um, question, I think, um, uh, to answer that one, where retailers have had to put in extra packaging, you know, and, and, and you know, maybe some categories where um, uh, fresh fruit and vegetables, in-store bakery and stuff, consumers um, it really have switched to the number one driver there is the hygiene factor um, and, and wanting to feel safe. Um, uh, but they are aware at the back of their minds, actually, that you know, using extra plastic is, is, is not um, uh, sustainable in the long term. Um, so I think what, they're sort of being patient for now and they're accepting that there's a need because of the current COVID crisis for, for hygiene to, to, to take precedence over everything else. But as always, they're looking to manufacturing and the retailers to find a solution which is more environmentally friendly. So I, I think they will they are expecting that to, you know, the, the, the solutions to be more sustainable going forward. Um, I would say on sustainability in terms of health, um, without doubt, um, the message is beginning to get through in terms of the link between obesity and, and um, uh, the impact COVID will have on you. We've seen in our surveys that, um, you know, consumers, the amount of consumers who are wanting to lose weight, manage weight, um, uh, watching the amount of sugar and fat they're um, uh, consuming has definitely increased. We've seen them say that they're cutting back on snacking, um, but they also have the dilemma that they're at home and, and, and a bit bored. So it, it is about um, the challenge again, back to industry, is how you help them uh, do that. But I think um, one of the interesting was when we looked at the um, cooking from scratch numbers, um, which obviously were up and have held up in terms of, of um, our survey. Um, the two main reasons, there were two main reasons driving cooking from scratch. One was the fact that they wanted um, to manage budgets. So this is a huge issue. And, and I think we haven't talked about this, but, but price and budget is, is, is very much on consumers' minds. Um, but the second side was they, they perceived it to be healthier. 
and it was it is a way for them to manage what they're actually eating and, and consuming in terms of, of um, the ingredients that are going into their meals. So they are very conscious um, and, and more conscious than ever around um, the need to manage their health. So our sense is that, you know, you know, 2021 will be very much about a healthier diet and, and healthier lifestyles for consumers, irrespective yeah, so of the vaccine coming out. So, so what do you see the, the impacts of, of some of that for um, for the manufacturers such as, as Ash? Um, obviously, we, we talked a little bit about um, sort of how you manage innovation in a recession and that sort of thing. What What's the sort of uh, the, the readouts for the guys sort of going into 2020? Yeah, I think it's very much, I think... Uh, uh, sorry, I, I mean, I'm just to just say for us, it's, it's that consumers are much more aware about what they're consuming. Um, I think um, it is about they're being going to be more conscious about what they're they're putting into their bodies. Um, they are going to want to treat themselves without doubt. So you know, the the the, the, the indulgence and the treat side is not going to go away, and particularly on the retail side, because if they can't eat out, yeah, and they're not. You know, they're going to buy that dessert that they would have had in a restaurant in the retail um, environment. Um, so absolutely, they are making up for it. But I think increasingly um, they will look to manufacturers to make it easier to, to have um, lower fat products, lower salt, lower sugar. So they will be looking, there will be a demand towards industry, as, as consumers always do. They put the onus on industry <laughs> to find the solution rather than themselves. You know, they want life to be made easier for them. Um, so I think there will be an onus on industry to come up with um, great tasting but healthier products. Yeah. So in Ashley's case, how do you see um, what you'd um, the sort of trajectory that you were on, um, perhaps being influenced by by some of the changes that Claude is describing? And apologies, Claude, for continuing. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, th I think Claude makes some really good points about the the, the impact of long term in home sort of changes in consumption and how that all um, against the backdrop of also being concerned about health, but also. You know, the financial situation as well. So, so, so I think for us, there's, there's probably four areas um, of, of, of shift. Some of them we were kind of well positioned on, some of them we're having to adapt to uh, very quickly. So I, th I think the channel shift one is is one that's been well reported um, around, you know, online and e-commerce uh, and so on. And, you know, how well, you know, hospitality and food service look like, you know, we're, we're fortunate predominantly with, you know, quick service restaurants. So we've actually come out relatively okay on that, but that's luck more than any sort of particular sort of um, judgment. But I think the channel shift one is an important one for us and, and accelerating and being able to adapt our business um, to that one. I think the in is, is really interesting for us. When you think about our products, you know, dairy products, they tend to be today more ingredients for so sort of the in-home consumption, sort of home cooking scratch scratch cooking sort of really plays well to 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 to, to, to what we do and, and and how i think clover said something really good there which is what's the role in how we can help consumers so that's been very much in our minds in terms of both our products but in terms of how we present ourselves um i think the other thing is is, is the value shift and, and we don't really know how that's going to play out we know how that played out in the previous recession will it play out the same so we know how that played out from a channel perspective but Claude also talks, you know, about the, the maybe the stacking premium and potentially benefiting uh, in, in in food. Will that still play out the same way? Uh, but we certainly think the va the value type of uh, consumer and and again having a an offering around that for all of our business is is, is going to be really important. And then just the final one um, that I had assumed will go down in the priorities, but all the evidence that we're seeing is it's only gone up. 
which is this whole sort of attitude towards sustainability and packaging is, of course, one dimension of it and an important dimension. But I would say, if anything, we see the sustainability agenda only accelerating uh, for us, both things that are going to come at us uh, from legislation and so on, but also consumers and how they will uh, lead a sort of a change uh, in, in behaviour. Lovely, thank you. Um, Kate, from your perspective, um, certainly on the obesity agenda, obviously there's a, a tension there, isn't there? Because uh, obviously people want to treat themselves as we hopefully come out of lockdown in the next six months, people start going back to restaurants, that sort of thing. You know, they, they want to enjoy themselves. Like you say, it's the sort of, you know, you're party people. Um, so how do your guys manage um, manage that sort of tension between healthy offerings, um, being seen to be doing the responsible thing in terms of public health, um, but also not losing the sort of the whole reason that we go to uh, to go to the outlet, outlets that your members have? Uh, it, it is a real challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things. We, we don't sell products. We sell experiences. And often when you go for an experience, particularly if you're going out um, for a meal, you you are wanting a bit of indulgence and you are wanting an escape from the everyday and that's what we're set up to provide so while consumers will often tell you that they want lighter options they don't often want that when they're out for an indulgence uh, and they make very different choices so um you know the, the consumer evidence that we've got when you provide calorie labeling you provide those those lighter options they're not necessarily followed through in, in what consumers choose to buy in the venue. Um, uh, and also consumers act differently at different occasions. So I think, you know, there are times when people treat food as fuel and they are much more receptive to nutritional and calorie information at those points and may make different choices when they've got that sense of food as fuel um, rather than when it's an indulgence and when they're going out for an experience. I think our bigger challenge at the moment is how as an industry where, you know, we operate on extremely low margins. We're around four or five percent margins. So um, you've got you've got that that industry that is very susceptible to changes in the cost base. How with a covid ravaged business where um, they're very indebted, uh, they have got very no, almost no cash reserves uh, and they're, they're trying to rebuild how you can withstand further cost pressures that are being imposed by a, a, a public health agenda that is, is, is nice to do, but actually is, is perhaps not as essential or in, in our businesses' perceptions of priorities would not be as essential as trying to rebuild. So I think that's the challenge we've got to grapple with, that in peacetime in 2019, when we were having these conversations about how challenging it would be and what we would need to do as an industry to, to support the obesity strategy and obesity agenda um, is very different then and now. Uh, and that's our bigger challenge, that, that, that the whole context of the debate has changed. Um, so, so, so that will be uh, an interesting one to have that dialogue with government about. And, you know, if you look at the strategy that they, they just played, the consultation they've just published, um, I, I had a slightly surreal conversation with the Department of Health publishing a, a consultation about advertising of junk food um, and trying to get around to the fact that, you know, for, for a lot of that advertising, that stops many of the chefs showing photographs of their food. You know, a burrito, a burrito salad and, and uh, some of the lovely dishes that they produce, they couldn't take a photo of for Instagram to put on their menus and, and um, to put on their, their websites because it breaches the advertising restrictions. But just the fact that you've got a consultation coming out from government on a major change which would directly impact on a sector that is on its knees and it's done 
over six weeks, over Christmas, at a time when you've got most of the people on furlough because the, the sector is closed. I mean, it, it's just sort of that, that disconnect between political realities um, of what's going on with COVID and, and uh, an objective and an agenda, which we would all support, whether that's obesity, plastics, environment, sustainability, huge big challenges that we all need to get to grips with, but we need to have the management bandwidth to get through survival before we can look at that. So I think it's a it's a message of um, work with the industry, try and avoid unnecessary costs, try and be a, a perceptive about, about surviving, um, and then, then we can all come out of this and, and move forward together. But at the moment, that sort of public health agenda, that obesity agenda, it is it, there's a more than creative tension there. I'm going to come back before the end and ask each of you, um, probably more to, to Kate and Ash, sort of what your asks what your, your Santa's wish list for next year from the government might look like. So <laughs> might take a while. Um, but so just just to sort of move on then in the final few minutes really obviously the, the, the big elephant in the room if you like is, is Brexit and the B word. Um, I suppose the sort of supply chain disruption that we've seen during COVID if you like has been a little bit of a precursor to sort of what people are fearing might be the situation as we move towards the end of the transition period. Um, Ash you've obviously been very active on media on what this means for Arla. Do you just want to um, just sort of in a couple of minutes sort of summarise what your um, sort of concerns for the, the sector as a whole and, and Arla in particular are around how things are panning out at the moment? Yeah, so, so I think firstly, Nick, I think we can learn lessons um, from um, uh, our response to COVID. Um, but I think there are going to be some very different um, dynamics at play if, if we end up with, uh, even if we end up with a free trade agreement, and, and, I, and I'll come back to that. To, to make it a more evident, evidence-based discussion, we, we commissioned the London School of Economics to do a, a study of the impact on the whole food service, uh, well, whole food um, uh, industry in the UK, uh, so um, and particularly the vulnerabilities. And there was just some really important uh, data points that they came back with. So the first one was that we import 40% of the food that we consume. And therefore, you know, when you don't have you know, the free flowing, uh, uh, you know, uh, tra transport of goods into the food, into the into the UK, uh, even with a free agreement because of all the kind of potential non-tariff sort of movement uh, blockages, then the ability of the industry to respond to any disrupt or any demand spike is, is not there in the same way as it was. So I think one of the, the key things, I think, that for us beyond you know free trade is really important uh, because of on impact of, of tariffs on, on consumer prices uh, but actually it's, it's on a little bit what the non-tariff and, that, and that's particularly what i'm interested in is you know how i how how is the food system able to you know respond to um you know either supply-led challenges or demand-led and i think me is really important given that we're five weeks away from um, and there's still a bit too much ambiguity and, you know, whether it's the Northern Ireland pop protocol, whether it's, you know, exactly, you know, the, 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 the border operating models and the checks and, you know, and, and, you know, this is very complex because, and, and, you know, I know the government's working very hard on it and they're also waiting for negotiations and so on. And I think all as a business that I would say calibrating versus other CEOs that I've talked to, I believe that we are very organised. Um, we're still 
nervous about it. But there's a lot of things that we're not organised because we don't have the clarity on it and therefore how organised and have the clarity. Um, and I genuinely think that consumers views on you know, consumers have had a pretty horrible year. Um, you've got Christmas, you're worried about what's Christmas going to be like and the impact of COVID too. And, you know, I don't think consumers are really thinking what, 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 what you know, so I think it could be a bit of a shock for people um, in January if, if we do get some of the sort of things that the London School of Economics are saying could happen if we don't have a free trade agreement and if we don't minimise the um, non-tariff. Um, and therefore, that's, that's why I've been active in media, because I think we do need to raise awareness of that. Belinda, to, to Ashley's point there, what, what are consumers thinking? Are, are they thinking? Are, you know, is there an assumption that uh, that everything will be okay and it will be business as usual without disruption? Well, what, what do they think yeah. of prices? I think there's two key things here is, is that um, uh, irrespective of Brexit, 70% of consumers are worried about their finances uh, as it stands. And then when we specifically ask them about, and, and, and um, you know, in, we had a 25% of the households or households in the UK are what we class as financial worriers. Um, and they're worried about the main um, uh, income uh, uh, going, their job losses um, once the furlough schemes end. So, so that financial thing is, is there already, irrespective of Brexit. And, and, and then what it's meaning is that Brexit you know, has um, something like 74% are worried about rising prices because of Brexit. Um, and 50% of them are worried about food shortages. What I would say is, is that it, it always strikes me, um, and I suppose the problem is because I'm in industry and I understand it, um, and only work in the food and drink sector, um, consumers have, don't really understand food supply chains. They don't really understand where their food comes from. So they don't really know what we're heading into. So their view is it's a very simplistic thing, is that the retailers just buy British food. And they just buy from British manufacturers and that to keep the shelves stocked. They have no concept that the ingredients are coming from Europe um, or that the ingredients will be subject to the tariffs. So they take a very simplistic view on where their food and drink comes from. I, I, as I said, we, I was doing some groups about two weeks ago and they talked about how the Italian food might go when, um, uh, and this was just an Italian recipe. So it's actually made in the UK, but because it's an Italian recipe, they thought it might get hit by Brexit. They have no perception, no real understanding. And I think that's the real worry, is that while they're worried, they don't really understand the, the magnitude of what could be coming down the track. But they do get that prices may go up. Um, and I think there is a call, and, and, and I know um, the retailers worked um, brilliantly with um, their biggest suppliers, um, uh, certainly during during COVID. But there has to be something about if, if tariff comes in, in terms of sharing that load so that it's not it's not felt by the consumer in the way that potentially it could be passed on to the consumer. Um, and, and I think there's the onus on the retailers as well as the manufacturers to, to, to find a way of, of, of softening that impact if we end up with a, a no-deal um, situation. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, just to pick up that point with, with Kate and sort of, you know, does does it pass down the line? Obviously, hospitality's had a had a horrendous time. You know, what, what are they feeling about the um, the likely impact of Brexit, sort of prices going up, consumer concerns, that sort of thing? Are they, they will, will they be passing it on? Have they uh, have people have thought about the time to think even? 
Um, well, I think, you know, it, it is all cloaked with um, with COVID um, and, and clearly their biggest concern is about food price inflation. We saw what happened to food price inflation just after the vote. So they've had that shock before in their food supply chain because clearly they are buying at wholesale prices and therefore the price at which they buy their food is directly affected by the currency. So we're much more susceptible to currency changes uh, that fuel our food price inflation when we're, when we're buying uh, for the hospitality supply chain. Um, they have no choice at the moment. They will have to pass that on to consumers. Um, and therefore, that's a difficult balancing act when you are trying to wean consumers back off eating at home, ordering at home, takeaways to try and get them back into, into the restaurants. Uh, and that's why it's going to be so critical that we don't make matters worse. And our message to the government is don't make matters worse in hospitality by putting back the rate of VAT. So in supermarkets, food is obviously VAT free. The Chancellor cut VAT to 5%. The last thing we need when we are coming out of the crisis on the 1st of April, which is when it's due to take effect, is to put our prices back up by 15 percentage points at a time when that food price inflation will be starting to flow through. So in order to manage that impact for consumers and, and help the businesses deal with that, there is gonna be a, a price shock um, I think whatever happens, whether it's whether it's deal or no deal, tariffs or not, there is going to be food price inflation built into the hospitality supply chain where we're buying it from. Um, and therefore, that smooths out that shock in, in that vital part of the supply chain if we keep the VAT rate low. Uh, so, so anything we can do jointly to make sure we get that message across that it's, it will be bad for consumers, it will be bad for, for hospitality businesses, it will be bad for suppliers if we had to pr increase prices on the 1st of April by 15 percentage points. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you mentioned at the, the start of the conversation, we were talking about the um, sort of move into the, the COVID pandemic, that at that point, most of the, the focus of your sector was around um, the concerns about immigration and being able to actually continue to operate if there was a um, disruption to the um, sort of flow of people into the sector. Um, how, how are your members feeling about that at the moment? Well, we're still quite concerned about that because obviously we've got this short term issue where the labour market will ease um, and you've got large redundancies coming through in our sector, in retail, in distribution. Um, and therefore, you will have a pool of workers that we wouldn't have had access to before. However, as we get economic correction going through and it depends how quickly we recover, we with that we will come across that problem again in the future. So it is vital that the government gets this right. I think the castigation of so many parts of our sector as being low skilled, low value and not meeting the requirements for the for the new skilled visa, that will come back to bite us. And we do need to work to get that sorted uh, across government so that we've got access to the supply and the skills um, of labour that we that we need coming forward. Um, and also it's going to be acute when we, we get back in towards growth in, in international tourism 2022-2023, where um, you know some some of those skills that we had for, from from the uh, European countries, Italy, France, Spain, Switzerland, where they do value hospitality, they have hospitality hotel schools. We're going to need those skills, and we're going to need those language skills. So it's it's deferred. The anxiety is eased, but we know it's something that you're going to come back to in the future. And I think. You know, back to my, my analogy of the, of the grey rhinoceros, it's just there out of the corner of your eye. And unless we get it resolved, it will derail our recovery in due course. Yes. Yeah. Just conscious of time. Um, it's just gone 12 o'clock. We can carry on for a little bit longer if, if people are able to. Um, I've just had a question through, actually, that uh, I think is, is most relevant to 
to you, Kate, um, but I think probably also um, you've all got views on this. What the panel's views have been on the Eat Out to Help Out scheme um, and whether that should be repeated um, going into uh, to 2021 to try and uh, encourage people out there once we've got the, uh, the lockdowns out of the way. Um, I think the Eat Out to Help Out scheme was really good um, and, and did what it was designed to do. It was not to get people back into hospitality businesses. The whole point of that scheme was to rebuild consumer confidence after four months of lockdown and to get consumers to feel comfortable and incentivized to leave their houses, go back to the high street. So actually the benefits, I think, were felt much more widely um, by uh, town centre businesses, not just hospitality, because obviously 13 days, great. Um, but it isn't going to, to resolve uh, any of the challenges that we were facing. Uh, and actually, in Eat Out to Help Out, we had a, a significant uplift. So it, it accelerated the curve of us getting consumers back into our premises. But even with those 13 days, we, di we didn't get back to break even. Uh, so uh, it, it's nice. But I think much more meaningful would be to, to make sure that that VAT cut is extended. And if I was talking to the Chancellor and he was asking me where he thought he should prioritise half a million pounds, half a billion pounds, which is what it cost just over, um, I, I would be focusing it on, on business rates and VAT rather than another eat out to help out scheme. Because I think there was the there was the uncertainty about would consumers return um, in after the first lockdown, which is something that Clodagh touched on. Actually, they did. It, it didn't take that long to, to, to re-habit. did get footfall coming back. Not everybody, but we did get footfall coming back. And consumer confidence doesn't seem to have been dented when you look at what's happening in, in supermarkets and, and retail shopping. Um, but I, I do think if you're looking at helping the hospitality and rebuilding consumer confidence and giving a fiscal stimulus, that is a much better route. Nikki, can I jump in there? Because I, I they're just... Yes. Couple of things I wanted to pick up, Kato. Um, I, I, I get why you're saying it worked, um, but we actually ran a, a consumer um, survey uh, um, uh, in September, and we deliberately held off to early September to, to actually see the impact of um, Eat Out to Health Hive. And we were surprised to find that almost 40% still hadn't gone out, um, and that number went up to 45% when you talked about over the over 55s. So for us, I totally understand from you from an industry perspective and survival for your businesses in terms of things like VAT and managing prices. But I think from the consumer perspective, there's a real need around that reassurance and, and safety. And I think the big game changer will be a vaccine. I think the vaccine will be what will, will get all consumers back in or certainly that older generation. And even on the retail side, while we're seeing consumers shopping more in retail because that's you know where, where they're buying everything, um, they're in and out. So again, our focus groups, and we, when we chat with consumers rather than just surveying them um, uh, um, through, th through questionnaires, you know, they talk about the need to get in and to get out, that shopping is no longer enjoyment, it's not about browsing, it's not about spending time in front of the aisles and categories that they would have. So that, that, that um, yeah, it's, it's seen a bit like a, a necessary evil going into the retailers because that's where they need to get their foods. So I think the bit around the consumer confidence piece, I think there's a lot of work that still needs doing despite eat out to help out. Um, help uh, out. And, and I think the vaccine will be the big game changer here. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with you at all that we need to work on consumer confidence and just not sure that the eat out to help out repeat is necessarily the right thing because actually your figures tally exactly with what we were seeing in the industry in terms of uh, return and our customer polling data and consumer pulse data. Um, most of the people who ate out most frequently before the pandemic had returned. So our yeah. core customers 
had come back. The ones that were saying they were staying away and they were more reluctant were not core pub, bar and restaurant goers. They might come out once or twice a, you know, a year, not, not very frequently. Um, but I do think we need to work on consumer confidence. But, but I don't think for those people who've not come back to the high street, not liking shopping, not come back to hospitality, I don't think that's going to change uh, with the financial incentive. I think it is the vaccine and the rapid mass testing and feeling that we're through this. Uh, so I don't disagree with you in, at all on the consumer confidence piece. I, I just think if we're stimulating it and using money to do it, that is better. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Ash, um, from the supplier's side of things, um, what, what, what do you think the answer is? Is it the vaccine? Is it financial incentive? Is it a combination? How, how are we going to get things back up and running again? I think it's all of those things, <laughs> Nikki, to be honest with you. Um, and, and I guess, you know, the, 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 the common thing in what Kate and Claudia have been talking about is consumer confidence. You know, consumers have to be confident uh, to be able to change their behaviours. Uh, some did because of the out. We noticed that in terms of, you know, the shift. Um, but I think Kate also made some really good points around if, you, if, if it's an important thing for government that hospitality, whether it recovers to, can recover to where it was before, but if, if that's an important thing for government, then I think it needs to be more than just consumer confidence. And I'm not just going to repeat what Kate said, but I think she makes some very strong arguments uh, about how that needs to be sort of supported um, in order to make that happen. Um, so beyond, beyond that, I don't have any... Um, sort of extra builds. Um, I think it's a really important uh, point that Kate made much earlier around the the, the interdependencies. Um, and, and I think Claudia also made the point about, you know, understanding the complex nature of our food systems. Um, so I actually think that another ask beyond that, which is not something that can be delivered in 21, is to be able to prop those interdependencies and not just use the word it's complicated and be able to actually have some sort of a digital um, sort of foot of, of ha how all these interdependencies work. So I actually see over time uh, a real need to map our food system, uh, both from a sort of food security perspective um, and how we deal with these crises, but also actually to, 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 to be able to improve it um, as well. So that would probably be the only build that I have on the points that are made. Lovely. Okay, so we're, we're slightly over time, just in 30 seconds. Obviously, Kate's um, highlighted very effectively some of the things of the after the hospitality sector. But uh, if we had the decision makers uh, listening in on the call, what would be your, your asks for 2021 for, uh, for our government? Uh, I'll start with Kate. I, I probably said it, but, you know, allow us to restart. We have COVID secure protocols that are the best in the world. We kept our customers and our, our, get our workers safe when we restarted in July. We had 60 million customer visits a week, less than 1% of our staff tested positive for COVID and less than 2% of all outbreaks are linked to hospitality. So let us open and then let us get back to doing what we do best. And I take you back to where I started. If you support hospitality over the next two months, and we get to reopen, then come the vaccine, come March, we will go back to doing what we do best, which is 5% growth, one in six of net new jobs. It, hospitality creates jobs more quickly than any other industry. And that's the way to also help the supply chain get restarted. If you lift restrictions one day, customers will come out, not all of them, Clodagh, but you know, some of them will come out the next day. We will create a job on the third day because we have to have somebody serving that customer. 
that will then get money back through the supply chain and we build resilience in our supply chain. So open us up to do what we do best, support us while we are restricted, and, and then we will get back to paying £40 billion of tax a year. One pound in every three spent in hospitality goes back to tax. So we need, they, the government needs hospitality to be at full strength, to rebuild the public finances, to re-employ the people who've been made redundant in other sectors, and to get us out of the financial crisis that we're in, um, in the same way that we got it, uh, the economy out of the financial crisis in 2008. Okay. Ash, what do suppliers need? What, what would you be your big ask? I think, I think very practically now, a free trade agreement and one that minimises. Uh, uh, so that's really needed. Um, I, think, uh, I think more than ever now, and I'm very interested to see what comes out. So uh, Henry Dimbleby is a bit fuji. I think more than ever, the government needs to have a statement of intent of what type of a food industry it wants in the UK. So if we're 60% sufficient today, what's their unambiguous target ambition for that? Uh, and then for each sector, what, what, what's our ambition for that? And therefore, a statement of intent and a vision for the industry for the future that would give the confidence for some of the investment to happen, where I think some of the other European countries have prioritised food uh, much, much higher than we have uh, in this country. Um, I think then practically in a post-transition world, um, I think, you know, thinking about how to facilitate exports, how to protect, you know, our industry on standards um, and also competitiveness, you know, so working on how do we make the UK competitive on the world stage when it comes to food. Uh, and I think also what's long um, is really understanding the impact so impact studies by sector, food and channel of life in a post-transition. Uh, I think so. There's a lot of work, I believe, that uh, needs to do, which we'd also be very happy to support with. Um, Lovely, thank you. And Claude, are any final thoughts from uh, your yeah. perspective? Two things. I would totally agree with that in terms of the government needing to um, have a real food strategy, um, a food and drink strategy for the UK. And one that not only supports the, you know, the, the big guys and and and, and um, the farming community, but also um, really supports some of the entrepreneurial businesses. You know, um, across other uh, markets, they you know they get really good uh, insight support and development support and stuff from government agencies. And I think there needs to be a real comprehensive plan in place for the, for the food sector. But from a consumer perspective, totally agree with Ash. A free trade deal, the consumer needs to be protected from increased price. Any price increases. We will have some anyway, but you know they need to be minimised. And I don't think the consumer who's really going to be impacted on this has any sense of, of, of what's coming down the track if we don't get a deal. So absolutely a, a deal is needed. Okay, lovely. Thank you all very much for that. Um, huge thanks to, to Cloda, to Kate and to Ash for joining us on the panel today. And um, hopefully we will uh, see... Oh, my doorbell's going. <laughs> Sorry about the noise. Challenges of virtual conventions. Um, so, uh, yes, so obviously huge thanks to our panellists, huge thanks to the FDF team as well, our technical team who put a lot of work into getting the convention together for us. Um, thanks to our sponsors, uh, EIT Food and Clark Energy. Just a reminder, if you want to hear any more about Brexit, we have an FDF Brexit event uh, next week and details for that are available on the FDF website. Um, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you soon. FDF Awards. One of the most prestigious nights in the food and drink calendar is online 3rd of February. For details of this and other FDF events, including our online convention, visit our website fdf.org.uk. FDF.
passionate about food and drink.